Well, the dispensable church this last week had its first baptism. Actually, it wasn't the first baptism. There was an earlier baptism in which I was counseling a couple, and they uh, they had two children with them. They'd come from out of state. And in the middle of our talking back there in the little room, they said, uh, would you baptize our children? And they handed me their children. <clears throat> So I said, uh, I said the word baptism a lot, and I baptize you, and <laughs> I simply had never done one. I hadn't. Uh, you see, people, I haven't been a minister very long. There's still these looks of utter confusion. I know some of you have come here for the first time. You don't understand this church. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, I became a minister only because there was a couple who wanted to get married. And so that's, I had to become a minister in order to do that. And in the two and a half years or whatever it's been, we simply have not had the question of a baptism come up. And so this last week there was another occasion you always have another chance have you noticed that <laughs> and there was a very nice couple who wanted their twin boys baptized Miller and Bonifacio and so I got to think about the uh, the whole concept of, of a baptism and it's a very very lovely concept. Many of us were baptized as children. I was. But I remember nothing about it. It didn't mean a great deal to me. I know that for some of you it means a great deal. It just so happens that in the religion in which I was raised as a boy, there was no baptism service as such. And so I just had not had an occasion to really think about it. But I can see why it's such an important symbol. And I was very happy for the opportunity to, uh, to do this little service. And I'd like to share with you a little bit of what I saw. It is very interesting what happens to us when we look into the eyes of a child. Now, you might just take a moment and remember that experience. Looking in the eyes of a little baby, of a little child, remember the innocence, the complete and total innocence, the gentleness that you see there. Just picture that for a moment. This little child is completely in the present. This little child trusts do you see that? Do you see how completely the little child trusts? Do you see how totally the future and the absent and the uh, past are absent? Do you see how they are not caught up in worry? The little child is not thinking about what it will say next. The little child is not worrying about what it just said. It doesn't have a thousand things on its mind. It is present with you. Children are indeed a gift. They are not a gift in the way that 
is sometimes talked about that somehow children are better than everyone else, that somehow children are perfect, because if indeed children were perfect, then they would remain happy. And of course, very quickly, they lose their ability to be happy. They become confused and they become caught up in the world. And so, of course, a little child does have an ego. And the little child has things to work out. But there is that fresh moment. And it can last sometimes many years. Or it can last only a matter of months, depending upon the environment that the child comes into. But there is that time in which you can look into a child and you can see nothing but innocence and purity and gentleness. And no matter what the child does, you forgive the child. You wipe food off of its face. You wash the food out of its hair. You even change its diaper. And you do not hold any of this against the child. The little baby crawls into a room and utterly destroys it. <laughs> And somehow you walk in and see the little baby and you see the array of things around it and you smile. It is completely innocent. It hasn't yet learned about precious possessions, that some things are more valuable than others. It hasn't learned even about good bugs and bad bugs. I told you once about John when he was very little running in and saying, Daddy, I just kissed the spider in the sink. <laughs> but of course, the child has to be taught that there are insects that will hurt them. And now for some reason, there have been uh, a spat of rattlesnakes out on Tano Road. I'm assuming that none of you are potential buyers. <laughs> 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 if you are, if the other houses have them. We <laughs> and so we had to explain to John about rattlesnakes because he had gone up to this snake. Fortunately, the sound had scared him. So the gift is the way that we can look at the child. Now, of course, there's some of us who do not receive that gift. There are some of us who will look even at a little baby or a very young child and see guilt and not innocence. To see, We'll see a burden. We'll see a noise in the wrong place. The child shouldn't be let. They shouldn't let children in a place like this, in a restaurant or whatever it may be. But for most of you, you can look in the eyes of a little child and see innocence. Now think for just a moment what would happen if you turned that gaze upon the world. What would happen if you looked at the world the way you allow yourself to look at a little baby, at a little child? Just think. Would there be any trouble at all and you're releasing your life from pain and confusion, if you could look that gently upon the world. What we don't realize in the beginning is 
that our vision is transformative. You enter what you see. You take your sanity and your love and you put it in to that which you see. And if you're critical and if you're judgmental, then you join the problem, you join the pain that your brother or your sister is in. I've got to be careful about those words this morning. No, I haven't actually. <laughs> brother and sister. So I thought we'd talk this morning about making the world soft as opposed to making the world hard. The world is so hard for most of us. We make it so difficult. We think this walk home to our Father is so complicated. We believe there's so much to learn. And we get discouraged because we tell ourselves we'll never learn it. We think the distance is so long. God is closer to you than your breath. The peace of God is closer to you than your heartbeat. The peace of God, the love of God, God's love for you is at the very center of your mind, at the very center of your being. Your memory of the home that you left lies like a little unopened flower right in the midst of you. It is waiting only for the sunshine of your gaze. It is waiting only for you to shower it, shower it with, with liking, with wanting, with love. This memory of what you left, of the peace that you left. And we think because we left it, it is therefore a long, long way off. But we forget it did not leave us. Love did not leave you. And you merely sleep for an instant in your home. And to begin to see this makes even this world soft, a soft place to live, an easy place to be. Let's think for a moment about the opportunity that a child provides us. A child provides us with the opportunity to love without sin. You haven't heard me use that word at the dispensable church. Maybe not at all. I can't remember if I've ever used that word. To love without sin. What is sin? It's an old archery term that meant to miss the bullseye, to miss the mark. That's all it means. How do we miss the mark? How do we sin when we love? By not making it a gift. Whenever you love and then look for a return, whenever you love and look for proper behavior or acknowledgement or gratitude, you have given no gift. You've made a down payment. You can see what I'm thinking in terms of houses, you see. This is all <laughs> We'll get into second mortgages here in a minute. We'll have lots of analysis. So a little baby, a little child, gives us the opportunity to love without selfishness, 
without wanting anything. A little child gives us the opportunity to turn our mind to something better than all these worldly pursuits, all these things that we get caught up in. Isn't that true? That's what a little child gives us the opportunity to do. It will not reward us. It will not thank us. <laughs> There's great symbolism in that. <laughs> it's just that it escapes me at the moment. Now, why is it that we can look at a little child in that way we can love a little child and expect nothing in return, nothing in return. And yet we think we cannot do it with our spouse or with our friends or with our boss or with the clerk in the store or with other drivers on the street. What is it that we think we can do it in one place and we can't do it in the other place? Do you see how insane, how totally insane this concept is? That we can't do it? That the way home to our Father, that the awakening to our oneness is somehow difficult? Who imposed the difficulty? And yet it is difficult. It's difficult to forgive. It's difficult to see people as innocent because we have made it so, not because it's inherently that way. And so we begin. We are so afraid to take a little step. We are so afraid to say, this day I will begin walking home to my father. And yet, my friends, you will not get there until you are willing to take a little step today. As long as you wait for some dramatic breakthrough, some perfect meditation, some ohm that splits the ether, <laughs> then you will continue waiting because there's nothing to wait on. Your Father, Mother, God waits with you with open arms right where you sit. And what do you need to do to begin to feel just a little bit of this love, of this peace, of this hand in your hand? To feel just a little bit of the presence of your best friend. All you need to do is to look upon the world the way your best friend looks upon you and the way you allow yourself to look upon a child. And so you begin, and you simply start practicing it, and you simply try, and you realize that you're going to make mistakes. 7,321 before noon. And so you prepare yourself to make mistakes. Making mistakes is part of our way home. And learning what to do after we have made a mistake is part of our way home. We begin again. We simply 
say, yes, that was a mistake, and we begin again. And so to look upon the world the way we look upon a little child makes the world a soft place in which to live. What makes the world hard? Well, let's take that driver that's hunched over his steering wheel. No one at the dispensable church, of course, does this, mutters between tightly closed lips and so forth, glancing furtively to right to left to see who is infringing upon his or her lane. And the person did not leave the stoplight when it turned green. We must remind them of their duty. There is a principle to uphold here. The world must continue moving, and we must push it along. Who is your enemy? Who is this person that you must honk at and make them feel bad? I had a guy recently hang out his pickup truck and do because <laughs> he didn't realize I was going to turn left and I was not in I was in the fast lane and I was not going fast, you know. His world was very hard. He was having a hard day, <laughs> but it's not because the day was hard. It's because he was making it hard. Say in your heart, I would rather be happy than right. When you say in your heart, I would rather be happy than right, you make this hard world into a soft, easy, sweetie pie place to live. <laughs> so how do we make the world hard? By desiring it, any it. Criticizing it, any it fearing it, or giving it meaning. Desire it, criticize it, fear it, or give it meaning. Desire it, criticize it, fear it, or give it meaning. And you have made at least one thing hard. Now what we believe is that we can keep our mind immune from our outward insanity. We believe that we can hang out the window and clench our fists at someone or just do it mentally as they drive by in their inferior car. And then we think we can turn to our loved one or to our child and be gentle and kind. That is insanity. That you could take one mind and attack with it and love with it within the same instant. That is not possible. There is no discreet attack. And so, to criticize anything infects the entire mind because we cannot keep our mind immune from what we are doing. And this you will learn. That if you wish to have a good marriage, now, then you had better not criticize anything now because it's going to infect your relationship. If you wish to be a good parent, you better not criticize anything. Not the disposal, not the roof, not the cop, not the crazy minister. Because now your entire mind is in an attack mode. We use modern language here. 
So possibly that's clear. If we attack something, it is not discreet. We cannot confine it. It infects us totally. It infects the mind that we use, and it does enter your job. It does enter your task. If you're washing dishes and you're having a critical thought about someone, it enters the task. It makes it a hard task. Simply notice this. Do it happily, which means without criticism of anyone, and it becomes a soft task. So possibly that much is clear. But what about desiring anything? This is, of course, what so many of the Eastern teachers have told us. But certainly that idea is not foreign to our religious teachings. Why is it that we would desire anything in the world? It's because we think we are so small. We desire it because we are going to identify with it and we think we're going to make ourselves larger. And so we desire possessions because we think we're a little bit bigger with possessions. We actually think we are our possessions. We are actually proud of our possessions. How unhappy that is. How hard that makes the world. Because the possessions don't know this. And they fall apart. <laughs> and the only lesson we've taught our friends is they too wish a possession the same as ours? Ah, uh -huh, no, because that's not what we did. We got one bigger and better. And so, of course, that's what they want, is one bigger and better. And so what does that do to our possession that we identified with and we were so proud of? It diminished us, didn't it? And so now the world's a very hard place to be, and so we turn against our possession, whatever it may be. We identify with our occupation. We desire an occupation. One of the questions that I get asked most often, especially by younger people, is, I don't know what I'm going to be in life. Think about that for a minute, people. I don't know what I'm going to be in life? Is that not an insane question? You don't know what you're going to be in life? But we think we're so small that our occupation is going to make us larger. It will bring more love upon us if we have an occupation that will evoke envy. That was a joke. <laughs> our appearance. We desire an appearance. And that makes the world hard to desire an appearance and to work for an appearance. And it's a losing battle, people. <laughs> Perhaps you've noticed this. All you're going to do is to stave off the disaster a few more years. Don't desire an appearance. Be love. Be what your appearance is supposed to give you. Be kindness and welcome. Be beauty. Aren't some of your best friends so ugly you don't even want to appear with them in public? <laughs> and yet they just wash over you with their beauty, don't they? They just wash over with, your, with their kindness and their consideration. Desire that and you have it instantly. 
and the world is soft. And we identify with our problems. As a man worrieth, so is he. We identify with our problems. And we think it makes us bigger to have big problems. If you want to know why you haven't let go of this problem sooner, it's because you think you will be diminished if you don't have it. It's part of your identity to have this problem. If you would sit down and write a description of yourself, you would find that you're nothing but a list of problems. That's all you are, is a list of problems. And this makes the world hard. Leave your problems behind happily. Pretend that you're someone else who doesn't have them. (laughs) And if we fear it, it makes the world hard. So if we desire it, possibly that's clear. If we criticize it, possibly that's clear. Those two things make the world very, very hard. But what about if we fear it? Fear is actually a very friendly emotion in a sense. It's like a fire alarm. You are on are fire. <laughs> that's the thing. That's the only part that we get confused. We think something else is on fire and is about to burn us. We're the one who is on fire when we feel fear. And if you'll begin to notice your fears, it is almost like, now remember, I said almost, it is almost like precognition. <sighs> Powers. It really is. It will tell you that you're about to get in big trouble. As Gail and I did a little while back, in which we were looking for a nice place to have a picnic. And we were on the, the uh, islands up there off the coast of Washington. And the San Juan Islands, unlike the Hawaiian Islands, have virtually no public beach. The people own the beaches. And so if you wish to go sit on the beach, you've got to either know where the county road runs into the beach or something, or you've got to be on good terms with someone. But this was not right. This was not American. It was certainly not Hawaiian. (laughs) And uh, so we had a right to sit on the beach. And so we found a nice little place to sit and have our picnic, but we were anxious. Now, that was the key. We were anxious. And, of course, you understand what happened, don't you? We got yelled at. A very big dog was brought over to our picnic. (laughs) And we were told about all the other people who had come to that very place. And what do people think they are doing? And the person certainly hoped that when we returned to our home, there was not someone having a picnic (laughs) in front of our front door. Well, of course, I understand these emotions. I've had them myself, this business of private property. We all have it. We are indeed reluctant to lend our car out to just anyone, and yet we do it with abandon with our child's car. What do you mean? Let him play with it. He's your neighbor. He's your friend. What do you mean? Don't be selfish. You've got two cars. And the last one is, if we give it meaning. If we give it meaning, it makes the world hard. So if we desire it, possibly you'd like a way to remember this. 
Let's see, DCFG. If you desire it, criticize it, fear it, or give it meaning. DCFG. Dead cactus feels good. <laughs> now, that's not a true statement, actually. Actually, I can tell you from experience, this is not a true statement. DCFG. Dogs come for grub. True statement. So if you want a true statement. That's the way we say it. What do dogs come from, Tex? They come from grub. Yeah. So if you give it meaning, it makes the world hard. If you've just made a mistake and you try to understand it, the world is going to become a very hard place. If you've just had an accident and you try to understand it, the world is going to become a very difficult place in which to live. If you just got sick and you try to understand it, you're going to make the world an extremely unhappy place for you to live because there is no meaning in illness or accidents or tragedies or successes. If you just had a success and you try to understand it so you can explain it to other people because they're indeed are going to ask, how did you have the success? And you know you don't know how it happened, but you want to come up with a splendid explanation that shows your part. And of course, you realize that you had very little part in it. The tide just shifted your way for a moment, and you were successful. But if you look back, are you really sure how it happened? And did you know it was going to? And did you, in fact, proceed in the brilliantly logical fashion that you are now saying that you did? Try to understand your success or your failure or your tragedy or your illness or anything else that took place in the past, anything else that's not present, anything that you've got to take your mind away from those who are present and look back on, anything that you have to moil over and over in your mind, anything that you have to d dissect and analyze, anything that requires comparison with others in order to give it meaning will make the, har the, wor the world hard. Makes the word hard, too. <laughs> it had no meaning because it had no God. Your home is not in the illness. Your home is not in the accident. Your home is not in some worldly success. Your way home is not in anything that happened. Your way home is in the presence and the gentleness and the innocence that is like a child that sits and soaks up heaven here and now. So don't explain a crazy world to yourself. Just say, that's the way it happened. If you see a mistake that you made and you see a way of doing it better next time, of course you do it better next time but you don't try to find great meaning in it. You don't try to read signs in it and symbols. You don't try to think that, that there's some form of guidance in it. That God made your business go bankrupt in order to teach you to move to Topeka. I'm so happy in Topeka. And so obviously... 
My, my business should have gone bankrupt. And of course, God had to turn the whole economy upside down in order to send you to Topeka. You see how crazy we get? Don't look for meaning in the past. Don't look for meaning in some future goal. What is the point of that? Where is your way home? Where is the gentleness and the happiness in that? It is indeed possible to be like a little child. We talked about this last Sunday. To remember the child's mind. Do you remember we closed our eyes and you thought of the time that you were just swinging on a swing, back and forth, leaning back, looking at the world upside down? Perhaps you remembered coasting down a hill on your bike. Perhaps you remember playing with a little dollhouse. John loves to get in the sink and do what he calls wash dishes. It's a very liberal term that he uses. But he does all the things that we do. It's just that he doesn't do them in the same order. <laughs> and so there's lots of soap poured in and the little sprayer goes on and there's the sponge going around and so forth. And I've seen him wash dishes for an hour and there wasn't one clean dish. <laughs> there was a lot of water and soap and so forth. But he really thought that he was washing the dishes and we told him how wonderful he was and everything. The interesting thing was he loved it. He enjoyed it. It was not a difficult task for him to do that. He was in the present. He had the mind of a child. Can you think for a moment of that possibility of just spraying the water, seeing the little soap bubbles, feeling the different temperatures of the water and so forth? Isn't it interesting that you need this to get that off with and you need this other thing to get this off with? I recently realized you cannot, it's, you shouldn't put uh, a, uh, what are those things that you do, I guess, egg beater in hot water. Hot water bakes the egg onto the egg beater. You should put it in cold water, and then it comes off more easily. This is interesting. <laughs> no? No. <laughs> John loves to sweep the floor. Jordan loves to lick the floor. <laughs> Just sweeps and sweeps and sweeps the floor. This is a possibility. Why can't we be happy? Why can't we be in the present? Why do we always have to have some teeny little goal that we're after? Why do we always have to have some misery that we're casting our mind back to a thousand times in one day? Some conversation that didn't go right. Why? Why do we have to do that? The answer is we don't. We can remember the child's mind. We can be in the present. It is possible to drive your car the way you coasted your, your bike. It is possible to do that. It's possible to roll down the window and feel the air coming across your cheek if you want to. It's possible to be completely in the present and the world becomes a happy place. Okay, let's see how much time. We haven't got much time. Yeah, speaking of staying in the present. Now, many of you have heard me speak of Manny 
Dr. Manny, we called him affectionately. Dr. Manny is, as you know, the owner and sole manager. He actually, the late Manny, was the owner and manager and chairman and so forth of Manny's Ministerial School, where I had my theological training in <clears throat> New Claude, Texas. Now, you all know that. Um, and I also told you that, uh, well, possibly you want to know why we called him Dr. Manny. He explained to us one day that when God called him to the ministry, he also gave him a Ph.D. <laughs> These things can't be questioned. If one's true, the other is too, of course. <laughs> and uh, I told you that actually it was called Manny's Ministerial School and Hamburger Heaven, but I didn't tell you. <laughs> Remember, he had the little apron that said, there's only one patty. You know? uh, <laughs> but actually, um, it was Manny's Ministerial School, Hamburger Heaven, and therapeutic massage parlor. I haven't told you. I haven't told you that. It was, I wanted to break this in on you slowly. Uh, but Manny, many of you don't realize this, but Manny was actually the first person in this country to use the word parlor in connection with massage. And that's because he actually did it in his parlor. He had one, have you ever, did any of you grow up and go over to your grandmother's house and there was this little parlor off the side that no one ever went in. You know, you weren't allowed to go. No one was allowed to sit in the chairs or do anything in it. Someday there was going to be a guest important enough to be brought to the parlor. Well, in his Winnebago, Manny had such a parlor. <laughs> and uh, that's where he did his massage. And he had this little uh, massage toga that he wore. And uh, it said, uh, a relaxed body is less body. Relaxed body is less body. But Manny believed in using, he didn't use just any oil. He didn't use just baby oil or something like that, you see. Manny used uh, the things of nature that were around him. He used the essence of tumbleweed. <laughs> New Claude is... Texas is in the panhandle, Texas panhandle. It's not really people, but <laughs> in our imaginations, this is where it is. Uh, and uh, the, uh, the tumbleweed oil had spilled on his toga, and it would blot out certain words and so forth. Uh, and uh, it actually, at one point, it, it came to mean, it ca actually came to say, Relax less, and because it, it had blotted out everything else. Uh, and this cut down on his business. The people didn't understand this. This was a very unfortunate thing, because Manny was indeed a great massage therapist, uh, as well as a great theologian. And my dad, who doesn't want to be recognized, because he's in short blue pants. <laughs> great legs. Great legs. Um, he actually came to my graduation, and Manny was very grateful. It doubled the size of the audience. 
But from all of this experience, and, you know, we would watch, just as we watched him flip the burgers, we would watch him flip the bodies. And, <laughs> and, and he, would, he, would, he would say these things. And I, I remember, and this is what we will close the service with, was this great saying. Now, this is really a good saying, people. <laughs> a firm mind makes a soft world. Now, let's get serious for a moment. <laughs> let's get serious about happiness now. <laughs> so I'll leave you with this thought, that a firm mind makes a soft world. You don't relax into peace. You are firm in peace. This is what's not generally understood. You don't, you're not lazily peaceful. You're not idly peaceful. Your way home is the way of consistency. It is the way of concentration. It is, in fact, training the mind to a single and happy focus. And that does not narrow the mind. It broadens the mind. And so you can say to yourself, in all truth, I already know enough. And that is correct. You already know enough. You don't need one more truth, one more concept. If you will just look in your heart, you know what to do. Never tell yourself, I don't know how to get out of this depression. I don't know how to get out of this confusion. I don't know how to get out of this anger. I've gotten myself in a state. I don't know what to do. It is not true. You simply, on a very super, superficial level, wish to remain in the state. And so you tell yourself, there is no way out. There is, of course, a way out. And that is to begin to take a little step out of the depression, out of the anger, out of the jealousy, out of the rage that you feel towards someone, out of the fear, whatever it may be, to just take a little step. But it must be a little step done with firmness, done with confidence. And so you take the step as if you knew that it was a step to take. You don't take it ambiguously. What is the step you take? It makes no difference. Could a path home be any easier than that? That the step you may take makes no difference? Provided you simply take one. And so you can just sit down in a chair and just look at it all for a second. Just look at it all. Look at your state of mind. Look at your depression. Look at whatever it is. Instead of fighting it and running from it, just look at it. You know all the things that you can do. You can start reminding yourself of the truth. Now, of course, if you're depressed or if you're ill or if you're angry, it is more difficult to remind yourself of the truth. There's no doubt about it, but it's not impossible. And so you begin reminding yourself of the truth. What is the truth? That you've got help that you're not doing this alone. You are not doing this alone. You do have help. You are never lost and alone. If you could but look and see how many times you have come right to heaven's door.
If you could look back far enough and see how many times you were on the point of awakening and you know what you did, you turn back to depression and discouragement. I'm not talking about physical depression. Just get in the bed and curl up or something or do whatever you want to. I'm talking about this depression that we think is logical. We, that there's some reason for it. This discouragement. Do not kid yourself that you love misery. You have a deep and long love affair with misery and unhappiness and depression. And you have gotten right at the point of awakening many, many times and you got discouraged and you wallowed in it. And it was never necessary to do that. All you had to do is not try to overcome it all at once, not to expect some perfection, but just to take a little step, just to try, just to say, help, 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 help. That's everybody say that. Help. <laughs> okay. How are we going to, are you going to end? Are you both going to do it together? Okay, a grand finale. <laughs>